Happy hauntings, horror fans, and welcome back to this week's episode of Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and this is episode 50. That feels, it might not seem like a lot, but that feels great. So thank you to whoever has watched or listened, I guess, since the beginning, or if you're new, welcome. Yeah, it just feels really good to like get to 50. Uh, makes me very excited for episode 100. Um, so for today, I'm sure you can tell by the title, but we are doing the film The Black Phone. This is a huge favorite of mine, and I think, honestly, that this is the point when COVID restrictions were ending, um, when I went to the movies, that I was like, we're back. Like, cinema, we're doing stuff. Um, I was so excited. I remember sitting in the movie theater watching this in awe of everything that they did. It was so good. The actors are incredible. The story is great. We'll talk a little bit about the short story to film differences uh, because this is a short story written by Joe Hill or based on a a short story written by Joe Hill called The Black Phone. Um, So really excited to get into that. And actually, I know we normally do kind of horror movie news or horror news to start off the episodes, but I'm not going to get into any of that this time. Um, The Writers Guild and the actors are still currently on strike, um, so I'm not going to be promoting any work that is getting ready to come out um, in honor of the strike. Uh, So yeah, not going to hype up a bunch of things. or really talk about anything that's potentially in development right now um, because the actors and writers and stunt people and everyone who goes into making these amazing films that we love so much uh, deserve to get paid for their work um, and deserve to be able to like be comfortable living their lives. Um, yeah, they shouldn't be have, having to worry about living paycheck to paycheck while the big executives who have no say in or who who have a larger say than they should in the films um get to reap all the benefits and tell everyone else to go to hell so we're not going to talk about any horror news um but yeah so we can just go ahead and get into the episode i guess we'll start off with a summary like normal so the black phone is about a 13 year old boy named finney who is abducted by a sadistic killer and trapped in a soundproof basement the killer is known as the grabber by the media And Finney discovers that he can hear the voices of the grabber's previous victims through a phone on the wall in the basement. And these voices aid in Finney's escape at the end of the film. Next, we'll talk about the Rotten Tomatoes, which made me so happy when I officially looked this up for the podcast. Uh, Critics gave it 83 and audiences gave it 88. Again, this came out. Let me double check. So this actually came out in June of 2022. So it's only been out for about a year. I know it was originally supposed to come out in like, I think January of 2022. And then they pushed it back to like late February or early March. And then they pushed it again to June. I remember, yeah, like I said, watching this in the theater and it just being phenomenal. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It's got some heavy themes, uh, which we will get into. I guess just trigger warning. Um, I mean, the summary should let you know, but it's, you know, about a man who abducts and 
ends up murdering children. Um, so if that's not for you, if you've not seen the film, you're not into it, please don't listen to the episode. Um, I, there are some things that um, are talked about. I don't go in depth into anything, um, but I do address some of the things that comes up. Uh, like Finney's father is abusive toward him and his younger sister. Um, and so I briefly discuss in the scene what's happening, but I don't go into specific details. Um, I think that the film does a, I hate saying good job, but it does a, a, a good job of portraying what's happening without the audience having to see what's happening, um, but still the audio effects that were added and the acting, um, especially by Madeline McGraw, were phenomenal um, and made me feel sick in the scene that we'll talk about. So trigger warning off the top. If that will be difficult, please, I'll, I'll try to give like a warning to skip ahead 30 seconds or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tough one. But back to the audience score, 88, which I full on agree with. This, um, while it's heavy, would is definitely in my like rewatch. I have it on DVD. I bought it on DVD like as soon as it came out. Um, all for physical media over here. So yeah, uh, and especially because right now it's not streaming. It's not streaming anywhere, which was a bummer. Um, and I, I always feel really bad when I do episodes on um, films that aren't streaming anywhere. So if you've seen it and you like it, go buy it. Physical media is very, very important, especially now um, with studios making things, uh, kind of going back to the strike, like making things and then just taking everything off. And then of course the writers and actors and everyone who put their time and effort into creating that show or that film or whatever all of that's just erased like it, no one's gonna see it because it's locked behind some stupid studio thing um you know i would love to get the mike flanagan shows on dvd uh, midnight mass specifically i would love netflix um has basically said they're not going to release any of them on DVD, especially now that Mike Flanagan and Netflix have cut ties. Um, the likelihood that we will ever get that is not going to happen. So if Netflix decides to remove those, then that media is just gone, um, which is really sad. So go buy the things that you like if it's available, because I think that that's very important. Uh, but we can jump into a cast breakdown. So we have our main character, Finn, or Finny Blake, is played by Mason Thames. And Mason was featured in three episodes of the first season of the Apple TV Plus series For All Mankind in 2019. He was then cast as Robbie Knievel in Evil, a biographical drama based on the life of Evil Knievel. However, production was put on hold due to the COVID pandemic. Mason played a lead role in the Scott Dickerson horror film, The Black Phone, alongside Ethan Hawke, which is, of course, the film we're talking about today. The role garnered him widespread acclaim, and the film received generally positive reviews from critics. He was also featured as a young walker in the first two seasons of Walker. Mason will star alongside Mel Gibson in Boys of Summer, an indie feature directed by David Henry. He will also star in the high school comedy Incoming and in the live action adaptation of How to Train Your Dragon alongside Nico Parker. Then we will move on to Gwendolyn or Gwen Blake, who is Finn's younger sister, and she is played by the amazingly talented Madeline McGraw. I think that Gwen pretty much steals every scene that she's in in the movie, and I am 
here for it. Love Madeline. Absolutely phenomenal. She's an American actress known for her role as Gwen in the black film. She also is known for her role as Zoe Campbell in the Disney Channel series Secrets of Sulphur Springs. After acting in several Pixar and Marvel Studio films, Madeline McGraw was cast in the black phone for Universal Pictures. Then we have our role as the Grabber, who is played by Ethan Hawke. Ethan's an American actor, author, and film director. He's received numerous nominations, including four Academy Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, and a Tony Award. He made his debut film in Explorers in 1985 before making a breakthrough performance in Dead Poets Society in 1989. Hawk starred in the Before trilogy from 1995 to 2013. He received two nominations for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Training Day and Boyhood, and two for Best Adapted Screenplay for Co-Writing Before Sunset and Before Midnight. Other notable roles include Reality Bites, Great Expectations, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Maggie's Plan, First Reformed, The Northman, Chelsea Walls, The Hottest State, and Blaze, um, as well as the documentary Seymour and Introduction. He created, co-wrote, and starred as John Brown in the Showtime limited series The Good Lord Bird and directed the HBO Max documentary series The Last Movie Stars. He starred in the Marvel television miniseries Moon Knight as Arthur Harrow. In addition to his film work, he has appeared in many theater productions. He made his Broadway debut in 1992 in The Seagull and was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Feature Actor in a Play in 2007 for his performance in The Coast of Utopia. In 2010, Hawk directed Sam Shepard's A Lie of the Mind, for which he received a Drama Desk Award nomination for Outstanding Director of a Play, and in 2013, he starred in the Roundabout Theater Company's revival of the Sam Shepard play True West. Then we have the role of Terrence Blake, who is Finney and Gwen's father, and he's played by Jeremy Davies. Jeremy's an American film and television actor known for playing Ray Ebley in Spanking the Monkey in 1994, Corporal Upham in Saving Private Ryan, Snow in Solaris, Ben Henson in Dogville, Charles Manson in Helter Skelter, Sergeant Jean DeBruyne in Rescue Dawn, and Daniel Faraday on the series Lost. Jeremy won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series in 2012 for his portrayal of Dickie Bennett in the series Justified from 2011 to 2015. He also received a BAFTA Award for Best Performance in a Video Game for his role as Balder in God of War in 2018. Then we have the role of E. Roger Mitchell, and he plays Detective Wright. And Mitchell's an American actor. He has had several major roles, including Schaff in Hunger Games Catching Fire, Detective Sergeant Morris in American Woman in 2018, and Paul on The Walking Dead, as well as television roles on The Shield, One Tree Hill, and Carlton Pettyway on The Quad. Then we have Troy Rodasil, who plays Detective Miller, and he's an actor-producer known for The Black Phone, The 24th, and Halloween Kills. Next, we have someone that we've chatted about on the podcast before. We have James Ranson. We chatted about him in It Chapter 2. And James plays the role of Max, who is the Grabber's brother. James is an American actor and musician. He's known for his role as Ziggy in the second season of the drama series The Wire. He is also known for United States Marine Corps Corporal Josh Ray Pearson in the war drama miniseries Generation Kill the deputy in the supernatural horror film Sinister and Sinister 2. 
Chester and Tangerine, and adult Eddie Kasprak in It Chapter 2. And then, of course, Max in the Black Phone. Then we have the role of Robin, who is Finn's friend and sadly a victim of the Grabber. And Robin is played by Miguel Cazares Mora. And the only known, like, um, productions I could find for him are the Black Phone. Then we have Vance Hopper, who is another victim of the Grabber, and he is played by Brady Hepner. And Brady is known for the Black Phone, Chicago Fire in 2012, and Seesaw in 2022. We have Bruce Yamada, who is another victim of the Grabber and played against Finn in a game of Little League Baseball. And Bruce is played by Tristan Pravon. Tristan is known for the Black Phone, Forever in a Day in 2022, and Camille vs. Roscoe Smith in 2021. Then we have the role of Billy, who is another victim of the Grabber, and Billy's played by Jacob Moran. Jacob is working in New York City and television and film industry. He most recently completed the Broadway first national tour of the Andrew Lloyd Webber's School of Rock. And then the last character that we'll talk about is the role of Griffin, who is another victim of the Grabber, and he is played by Banks Repetta. Banks played the lead role in the anticipated film for Focus Armageddon Time in 2022 opposite Anthony Hopkins, Anne Hathaway, and Jeremy Strong. The film was recently selected to compete at this year's Cannes Festival. His other credits include The Devil All the Time, which starred Tom Holland and Bill Skarsgård, and then of course he was in The Black Phone, as well as the Sundance hit Uncle Frank, written and directed by Alan Ball. On television, he can be seen reoccurring on Manhunt, The Unabomber, opposite Sam Worthington, as well as the Fox comedy Welcome to the Flatch, from producer Paul Feig. He has also appeared in Stephen King's The Outsider on HBO and Lovecraft Country on HBO Max. And then he was also in the show Gone for NBC. And that wraps up our cast breakdown. We can now jump into our fun facts. So the grabber in the short story is a clown, but Joe Hill himself suggested that in a post-it world, they couldn't keep that, um, especially with you know the success of it happening uh, so recently. So they changed the grabber's um, kind of persona to a musician instead. And originally in early drafts of the script, uh, the grabber wears all of these different, like really intricate kind of looking masks. Um, and in early drafts of the script, they were described as leather, but Scott Dickerson knew that they'd be the centerpiece of the film's marketing. So he spent a lot of time designing what these masks would look like. And they almost look um, like porcelain, but like rough porcelain. Um, they're very interesting. And I think that they're very creepy. They're great. Uh, so in the film, one of the victims of the grabber is a paper boy, and this is in reference to Johnny Ghosh, a paper boy from Iowa who was on a route with his dog Gretchen and disappeared. The dog was found later, but Johnny's disappearance remains unsolved to this day. The grabber dons several creepy masks throughout the film, each exposing different portions of his face. They were designed by legendary prosthetic makeup artist Tom Savini, who we've talked about before on the podcast. And Mason Tam said that the first time he saw the mask, coupled with Ethan Hawke's bone-chilling performance, he was really scared. Uh, Scott Dickerson is on record as saying, I think it's fair to say that he's my favorite actor I've ever worked with in 
response to asking about working with Ethan Hawke. He recalls trying to convince Hawke to do Sinister in 2012, despite the actor's protest that he didn't really like or watch horror. Hawke had been concerned it would be a dark experience, but Dickerson convinced him that it's actually a lot of fun making horror movies. He had to be convinced once again for this film, but it was because he didn't really like playing villains and told Dickerson the script would have to be great for him to sign up. Hawke called back the night after reading it, left a voicemail in the voice of the grabber, and Dickerson knew he had him hooked. Um, sadly, of course, I talked about this at the beginning, but the movie was delayed from its initial January 2022 to June 2022 due to unexpectedly great preview showings. Once Blumhouse realized how great early reactions were, they gave it a big summer release box office debut. It was Ethan Hawke's idea to have the grabber react with panic when Finney removes his mask, and he also suggests that he slide fully into the hole after he's killed. They rewrote the ending a couple of times, searching for the best way to close things out, and an earlier idea saw the return of the ghost kids as Finney kills the grabber. Dickerson decided having him hear them on the phone would be better. One of the more common conversations that Dickerson has had with people about the film is in regards to Jeremy Davies' character. People ask if he thinks the man is redeemed at the end, and he told Davies not to play the role as a villain, but as a man in pain. Finney's conversations with the missing kids on the phone were shot with Mason actually speaking to the other actors on the phone. The Grabber is based on the real-life serial killers Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, Ted Bundy, of course, used uh, ruses to lure victims over to his car. John Wayne Gacy would use a belt on his victims, as we see and uh, hear from the other victims that the Grabber does. And Jeffrey Dahmer um, had one victim escape his apartment, who then ends up being recaptured by Dahmer, um, which happens to Finney in the film. He's actually able to escape at one point, but then sadly the grabber catches him again. Every method of escape that the kids on the phone tell Finney is used to fight off the grabber at the end, the hole, the cable, the freezer with meat, uh, packing the phone with dirt, and even the padlock combination. Dickerson says the axe to the head was a very difficult special effect to do. He adds that he looked at the whole history of cinema and there just aren't any real shots of an axe going into a head on camera. They pull it off here with a combination of both practical and visual effects. And it makes me think of um, Friday the 13th where like you hear something and then like the light flashes and then you see her character come down like with the axe in her face but you, you never actually see it go in it just it just appears in her head all of a sudden the basement set was built on a four foot riser so that they could actually dig into the floor dickerson really believes in test screening process not the number or score but the value of a test audience is to see what confuses them for the black phone test screenings revealed that over half the audiences were confused about the reveal of the two homes across the street from one another other areas helped by test screenings can be seeing if audiences are bored early on or finding moments of unintentional laughter along with other things near the end when gwen is riding her bike through the rain she's wearing a yellow raincoat that is identical to the one george denborough wore when he was taken by pennywise and of course joe hill is stephen king's son which we will talk more about when we get into the film because I have a theory and I think that it's something that a lot of people have touched on um, or a lot of people who are also very big into King like caught Um, and I hope that it doesn't make Joe upset that this is like a, a parallel but I think that Gwen and Finn have the shine. I think that that's what's happening in this film and I love it. I'm here for it. It made me so excited. I remember sitting in the theater 
we'll talk about it more when we get there but i remember sitting in the theater and i was like she has the shine and i was so excited and then our last fun fact before we get into book and movie differences is that there are a few similarities between this film and it a very eerie villain goes after children often trying to get them to approach him with promises of magic tricks or something fun the villain has a costume or familiar look of some kind, and while it shows a red balloon at times to denote danger, there are two black balloons in this film shown floating after a, the protagonists are taken. Plus, Gwen is riding through the rain, of course, in her yellow raincoat, and the grabber's brother, Max, is played by James Ranson, who plays the older version of Eddie Katzbrick in It Chapter 2, which came out in 2019. So, some fun little parallels there, in addition to me thinking that both Blake siblings are able to shine or have the shine. Now we can get into some book to movie differences uh, before we jump into the scene by scene breakdown. So um, the big overlaps in both the book and the movie is that Gwen is what they call psychic, again, what I think is the shine. The plot lines and conversations between Finney and the grabber are pretty similar to what's in the book and then the grabber's brother finds Finney and then is killed in the same way in the book as well as in the movie. But the difference is, so in the book, the book is a short story. So I keep saying book, but the story starts at Finney's kidnapping. Um, and Finney's actually kidnapped while waiting for his father, not on his way home from school. There's only one phone call that takes place in the novel, in the short story. And in story, Bruce Yamada doesn't remember his name. Even when Finney like tells him what it is, he's like, yeah, I have no idea, maybe. Uh, in the book, Finn's mom is still alive, Finn and Gwen's mom. And sadly, in the short story, Robin doesn't exist, which I really love Robin's character. And I think that Robin's character really adds to not only Robin and like the grabber and how scary that must be for the kids because Robin is known as being so tough around school but it also shows the opposites and how docile and passive Finn is in his life and so for him to be the one to have to like come out of that to save his life but also like end the grabber and the grabber's um destruction of their town essentially uh you know he has to turn to that violent side so in the movie it starts of course before the kidnapping um you know we see stuff leading up to that we see bruce yamada get taken we see robin get taken um like i said he's kidnapped while he's walking home from school and in the film there are many phone calls and in the film it's billy who doesn't remember his name even when finn tells him he's like yeah, I, I don't know and in the movie, Finn and Gwen's mom has passed away. Uh, so one of the big things that I didn't really think is too big of a deal, but the names are a little bit different. So in the book, Finn's name's actually John Finney, but of course in the movie, it's Finney Blake and he kind of goes by Finn. And then in the movie, Gwen is the name of the sister and she's younger, but in the book, the sister's name is Susanna and she's actually older. And then their personalities are a little bit different. Um, but like Gwen, even though she's younger, she's definitely like sassier and very strong in her beliefs in this one, uh, like in the movie compared to Susanna in the book. But I, I love what they did with Gwen's character. Like I said, she is probably my favorite. 
The Grabber is described a little bit differently in the short story. Book describes him as grotesquely fat with a bald, shiny head, while, of course, Ethan Hawke um, is having, like, shoulder-length hair and a much more in-shape physique. And the story suggested that the Grabber starved the children as his way of, like, giving them a merciful death. Um, He felt it was less cumbersome. In the novel, or, you know, the short story, he still wanted to... That was the end that he wanted for his victims, um, but he was kind of back and forth on whether or not he was actually committing the crimes or if it was just like oops accident type of a deal Um, but in the film of course we see the grabber give Finney food and his way of murdering his victims is actually by playing what the grabber calls naughty boy Um, so if the kids try to leave the basement they are quote-unquote punished for being naughty Um, and their punishment is death. And those are the differences between the short story and the film. Okay, apologies if you can hear my air conditioner in the background. It's uh, currently 96 here today, Um, and so I needed to to turn my air conditioner on. Um, I hope it's not too loud. Uh, If it is, I'll just cut this out. But now we can get into the scene-by-scene breakdown. We open with what looks to be a Little League baseball game. These kids, 12, maybe 13, toward the end of middle school. It doesn't quite look like they're freshmen in high school. So again, I would say Little League baseball. And this is North Denver, 1978. This is where we meet our main character, Finney. He is pitching in the game, and we see that his younger sister, Gwen, is watching him in the stands, very excited, cheering him on. And we see that Finn is currently pitching against Bruce Yamada on the other team, who is a known baseball player in town. Um, Sadly, Finn's team ends up losing. Bruce slams a home run. It ends the game. The players all line up to shake hands. And as Finn is going to leave, Bruce gets his attention and is like, you almost had me there. Your arm is mint. And they shake hands and Finn smiles as the both of them walk away. Next, we see Bruce riding his bike through town or kind of this little like residential area. He passes by two girls who seem very giddy to see him. He's clearly, you know, the one of the handsome boys in town. People think he's cute. He knows he's cute. He flashes a little smile, seems very happy with himself, you know, just won his team the game, all that good stuff. Um, So he's clearly very popular. And then we cut back to Finn, and he is at the baseball field by himself playing with a model rocket. He launches it into the air. We then see where Finn is compared to Bruce in town because we see the rocket come up behind Bruce in the distance while he's riding his bike essentially away from the baseball field. And as Bruce is coming down the road, we see this black van almost pull around the corner in front of Bruce. The screen gets dark, the music gets scary, and sadly, it's not going to end well for our boy Bruce. We get our opening credits, we get a lot of imagery of Denver at the time, kids playing in the neighborhood, missing posters, there's clearly kids going missing, crime is high, it's not all happy-go-lucky, we see kids fighting, it's overall probably not the safest or happiest time to be a child at the moment. Now we're at Finn's house, he's having breakfast, and he seems to be trying to be very quiet, and the audience quickly learns that Finn's father, Finn and Gwen's father, is an alcoholic. But not only is he an alcoholic, but he's an angry, abusive alcoholic. 
Finn and his sister try very hard, essentially, to walk on eggshells around their father. And at one point, Finn is, like, just eating his cereal pretty normally. Um, and his dad sarcastically glares at him from across the table and is like, can you slurp that any louder because they can't hear you over in Boulder? And again, Finn's not even being that loud. We see Finn's sister Gwen come into the kitchen and as she goes to get bread out of the bread box, the lid accidentally slams on the counter and they instantly all react. Gwen immediately apologizes to their dad and he clearly has a headache from his previous night of drinking. And you can see in the scene that Finn and his sister Gwen have a very close relationship. They kind of like roll eyes at one another and, you know, crack little faces, uh, you know, toward their dad when he's not looking. Next, we see Finn and Gwen on their way to school. They're talking about TV shows and crushes, and then they walk past a missing poster of Bruce Yamada. And Finn's like, look, it's a new one. His dad's putting new ones back up. So he's been missing for a little while. His parents clearly care about him. Gwen looks concerned, and then Finn says, you don't think they're gonna find him, do you? And Gwen says, not in the way they want to. Next, we see Gwen and Finn around the corner, and there's a fight going on not too far from school between Finn's friend Robin and a bully called Moose. Robin, even though he's a little bit smaller than this bully, ends up kind of beating the crap out of him, gets him on the ground, and just starts repeatedly punching him in the face. Finn is clearly not as impressed as the other kids. There's other kids, like, cheering him on, telling Robin to hit him harder, hit him more, make him bleed, all this stuff. And Finn ends up taking Gwen away, and he's like, look, I don't want to watch this. And Gwen's like, why not? And we find out that the bully named Moose is a giant asshole, and apparently he bait Finn up a while back. Made Finn bleed, things like that. And Finn's like, I don't care. I just, I don't want to be involved in that. We learn that Robin is now the toughest guy in school since the grabber kidnapped Vance Hopper. And Finn then tells Gwen that he wishes she wouldn't call him that. And apparently there's a rumor going around that if you say the grabber's name, you know, if you call him the grabber, that you'll be his next victim. Gwen's not scared, but clearly Finn is a little bit on edge about it. Finn and Gwen are walking to school, and we see the same black van following a little ways behind them. Next, we're in class with Finn, and he's listening to a lecture, but we see he's not really paying attention. Um, he's got this really cool spaceship pin that actually has a light on the end of it, and then he also gets distracted by this pretty girl in class that he likes, that he clearly has a crush on. We saw her at the baseball game as well. When class ends and the bell rings, Finn quickly collects his things and leaves. He's walking down the hallway, and a couple boys call out to him and they very clearly are not friends. Finn picks up his pace, walks down the hallway quicker, and goes to hide in the bathroom. He hides in the stall, but the boys follow him and call him out. He leaves the stall, and as the boys are kind of threatening him a little bit, and you think that things are maybe going to get physical uh, between this group of boys and Finn, Robin comes in the bathroom, and everything just kind of stops. Robin starts talking to Finn very casually. The two of them are clearly friends. And then the other boys go to leave, and Robin says, You fuck with him again, and I'll fuck with you. Which I think is very nice. When the boys leave the bathroom, Finn says thank you to Robin, and Robin's like, you know, one of these days you're going to have to stand up for yourself. Finn says he knows, and then we see that Robin's wrapping his knuckles from his fight with Moose. And Robin's like, I didn't think he was actually going to fight me. I thought he was going to back down. I was really shocked when he swung. So I figured, what the hell? And then Finn's like, did you have to be so intense? Like, did you have to 
make him bleed. And Ramit explains that sometimes the only way to get the point across to someone, especially someone like Moose, is to draw blood to prove a point. They start talking about movies, and Robin says that he's going to go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Finn's like, dude, that's rated R, my dad would never let me see that, and Robin explains that his uncle takes him to the drive-in so he gets to see anything because his uncle will take him. Robin says Texas Chainsaw is almost better than Enter the Dragon, and Robin then asks Finn to come over after school and help him with math. Finn's more than happy to help, and Robin's like, you know, the teacher, he doesn't explain it like you do, I just don't understand when the teacher says it, but you explain it so well. And Finn's clearly more than happy to go over and help Robin out. Next, we jump to class with Gwen, and she's actually pulled out of class and interviewed by two police detectives because she has been talking about stuff related to the case that hasn't been released to the papers yet. We learn that Bruce Yamada's younger sister is in her class, and she made a comment to Bruce's sister about black balloons left at the abduction site and the police officers tell Gwen that that hasn't been released and so they want to know if there's a leak in the department or and as they're kind of hanging on that Gwen's like what you think I'm the grabber like seriously are you guys fucking stupid and she just goes off like her principal is sitting right there these are two police detectives and she's younger than Finn which I think I mentioned she's probably like nine or ten maybe 11 and he's like 12 or 13 they're not super far apart but it's hilarious to see how sassy she gets about them like maybe hinting that she's involved somehow next we see Gwen and Finn on the way home from school and they pass by the bullies from the bathroom and the bullies are kind of standing across the street and they just stare Finn down Gwen asks what that was all about, and Finn says nothing, and then Gwen says that she's going to go stay over at her friend Susie's tonight, so she'll be home tomorrow morning. Finn says, I'll look after Dad, and they separate. Finn continues on toward the camera, and Gwen exits towards the right. Next, it's nighttime at Finn's place, and we see their dad asleep, clutching a beer bottle. Finn takes it out of his hand and sets it on the little table next to his father, and then we see Finn turn off the record that has stopped playing, and he sits in front of the TV and falls asleep watching horror movies been there done that a time or two sadly finn wakes up in the morning and we hear screaming from inside the house gwen is currently being punished because the detective showed up at her father's work to talk with him and he wants to know why we learn a little bit more about the kids past and their mother and we learn that their mother um heard voices and thought that her dreams were real and that the voices in her head started telling her to do things and eventually those voices influenced her to complete suicide so Sadly, they lost their mother, their husband lost his wife in a very, very tragic manner, and he, and instead of treating his kids with compassion, um, he's really scared because Gwen is having dreams that she thinks are real, and so he's worried that the same thing's going to happen to Gwen. So instead of holding her closer and trying to be compassionate and be in her life, um, he just uses fear and pain um, and so he's telling Gwen that her dreams aren't real and that she's not her mother and he's hitting her with a belt we don't see this happen but we like you know hear the sounds and Gwen screaming and again Madeline does phenomenal in this scene like her screams are gut-wrenching and at one point she even takes the almost full vodka bottle and says if you hit me again I'll drop it 
and their dad kind of makes a move like he's going to come toward her and she drops it and then he really gets upset um they kind of you know go through that scene and finn is just having to stand there because his dad essentially threatens him like you stay out of this or you know you'll be next type of a deal and finn you can tell is just so frustrated watching this happen his blood is boiling but he just doesn't you know he's he's helpless he he can't you know he's not going to go against his dad you know he's not a fighter like robin that's just not who he is um and yeah everything wraps up with that scene and their father makes gwen say my dreams are just dreams over and over and then he sends both of them into the living room to go watch tv before finn goes to sit down next to gwen though he just like if looks could kill their father would be dead which i mean is valid um but like i said finn's very passive he's not that kind of person he's not aggressive he's a nice kid he's calm but watching that happen to his sister you can tell um you know that really really gets to him but they end up going and watching tv they don't say anything to one another and gwen just kind of leans her head on finn's shoulder as they watch tv then we cut to robin walking somewhere he seems to be like behind this building there's like no one around no cars in the parking lot and then when he turns the corner of the building we see the black van again and sadly this is when robin goes missing we cut back to the blake's residence and the phone is ringing phones everywhere ringing down the street their father answers and he's told that robin's gone missing their father comes into the living room and asks finn if he knows someone named robin and finn's like yeah he's a friend from school and their dad just solemnly walks away Gwen and Finn look at one another very knowingly. Um, you know, it obviously can't be good. And then we get an overhead shot of the town. There's a bunch of police cars. There's search parties going out searching for Robin, you know, in the local woods. But, of course, sadly, he won't be found how people hope. We see Finn in his room looking really sad, and Gwen comes in and apologizes. She's like, I'm really sorry. I know he was your friend. And Finn gets into bed and says, don't say was. He is my friend. Gwen apologizes again and then Finn asks if she can do the dream thing and Gwen's like you know it doesn't work that way and Finn's like well have you tried and she's like of course I have and then he's like can you try again and she just doesn't say anything she closes the door and leaves and then Finn rolls over and goes to bed next we're in Gwen's room and she's got this little dollhouse that opens up like a book and this is where she talks to Jesus and she opens it and she's like Jesus I know you know what I'm gonna ask but I'm gonna ask you anyway my brother needs his friend. I know you can't let him go because you don't interfere or whatever. I don't know the rules. But if you could help me have a dream or two and see something that could help the police or maybe anyone find him, I'll follow you forever. And then we see a light flick on outside her room and she quickly puts her things back, says amen, gets into bed, and her father comes to her door and says, I know what you're doing in there. It's not playtime and you need to go to bed. And she's like, sorry, daddy. And then she rolls over to go to sleep. Next, we see the doorbell ring. The detectives are at the Blake residence, and they're wanting to talk to Gwen again, and her father looks very upset. And they're like, no, she didn't do anything wrong. Like, we just want to speak with her. They come in, and we don't hear any of the scene, um, but we see the detectives asking her questions, and Gwen's just shaking her head. She's not going to be forthcoming with anything with her dad standing there, um, even if she had information. I don't think she would have said anything, but again... Like, you know, she had told Finn she hasn't had any helpful dreams. Then we cut back to, I'm guessing, after school, and Finn is being chased by those three bullies. They end up beating him up pretty bad, of course. Uh, you know, Robin's gone, so he's got no one to back him up. But Gwen goes and tries. She, like, grabs this rock and hits one of the boys in the face pretty freaking good. 
she's like cursing at these boys she's putting up a good fight but they end up knocking her down pretty good and her and the boy that she hit with the rock end up having to sit out by the fence because you know they're bleeding so you go sit down and Gwen just ends up watching the two other boys kick the crap out of Finn Next, we're in class with Finn, and it's frog dissection day. They need to pick partners, and this person's going to be their lab partner for the rest of the year. Finn's looking around, and everyone's, like, scrambling to find partners. He doesn't have one, but then the girl that he likes, Donna, sits next to him and is going to be his partner. And then she says, those guys are assholes. And Finn's a little confused, and she's like, what happened this morning? Everyone's talking about it. He's like, great. And then Donna's like, you know, your sister's really cool, though. I wish my brother and I were friends like that. And Finn smiles, and we, again, like I said, learn that this girl's name is Donna. After school, Gwen is giving Finn a bunch of crap about it. She's like, ooh, Donna, be my partner. Ooh, Donna. And he's like, just stop. Just don't do that anymore. We find out that it's Friday again, so Gwen is going to stay the night at her friend's house, and Finn says that he'll keep an eye on Dad. They veer off to their respective areas, and as Finn's walking toward camera, we see that he's walking toward a black van, and as he's approaching it, this man comes around the side of the van with these two what look to be grocery bags, and this man ends up dropping them on the ground, so his groceries go everywhere, and he's like, dang it, isn't that just great? Finn, of course, being the nice kid that he is, offers to help the man pick up his groceries. The man says, thank you, and then he asks Finn if he wants to see a magic trick. Finn says, sure and then Finn notices that in the back of the van there are a ton of blown up black balloons and he asks the man about it and the man's like oh they are the man opens the door pulls the balloons out and then it like grabs Finn really quickly and like wraps him in the balloons so nobody would be able to tell that there's a child like wrapped in all of these that you know it's just like a man with a bunch of balloons he injects something into Finn and then sprays something into his mouth but while he's trying to get Finn into the back of the van Finn takes his spaceship pen and like stabs it into the guy's arm and cuts him pretty darn good for a pen the grabber falls back into the van essentially abducting Finn the grabber then gets out lets go of the balloons they fly away and we cut to the grabber taking Finn down into the basement. And the grabber is now talking to Finn and telling him that he should mess him up for cutting up his arm like that. Finn is clearly still a little bit drugged and the grabber leans down on the bed and sits next to him and we see the grabber has this really creepy mask on. It looks almost like a porcelain type devil mask or something. And we see the cut that Finn made on the grabber's arm. And the grabber's like, it looks like I killed someone. There's so much blood. Do you see that? And Finn's still out of it. He's just kind of staring off into space. Finn's now staring at the grabber, and the grabber says, I know you're scared, but I'm not going to hurt you anymore. What I said about snapping your neck, I was angry. That's all. The grabber says, now we're even, I guess. And he kind of, like, brushes Finn's hair out of his face. And the grabber tells Finn that nothing bad's going to happen here. The grabber asks Finn if he'd like a soda, and then he's like, I'm going to go get you a soda, and then I'll explain everything to you. The grabber leaves, and we see that Finn still has his spaceship pen, so he takes it out. He walks over to the door, but this big metal door, um, you know, he knows that trying to get out of that is, is a bad idea. He continues to make his way around this basement area, and we see that there's a small hallway that leads to a little bathroom, which is basically just a toilet. He continues to walk around. The music gets a little eerie, and as he walks back into the room with the mattress in it, he sees that there's this old vintage black phone on the wall. He walks over to it, takes the phone off the receiver, tries to call out, but we see that the cord is cut so the phone is no longer in service. 
Vincent's on the bed and kind of curls up into a ball, realizing that it's going to take a miracle to get him out of that basement. And we just get this close-up on his face as he's slowly realizing what has happened to him. Now we cut to Gwen, and she's at her friend's house, and the phone rings. The friend's mom answers and gives the phone to Gwen, saying that it's her dad, and her dad wants to know where Finn is. And of course, Gwen's confused. She's like, I haven't seen him since school ended. And then she drops the phone and runs out of the house. And of course, we only hear her side of the phone call, but Gwen knows that when Finn hasn't made it home, it's not because he's at a friend's house or something. She runs out of her friend's house, and then things get slow motion. We see police cars everywhere very similar to after Robin went missing. The two detectives that we met are talking to Gwen and Gwen's dad, and Gwen is just sitting on the ground wrapped in a blanket looking empty. They're like sitting outside of her house. She's praying in front of her dollhouse again, and the whole time we're getting this like little voiceover music, and then we hear the phone ring and we cut back to Finn. It almost seems as though the phone on the wall has rung, but of course there's no way that would happen, but he gets out of bed and picks up the receiver anyway. He puts it up to his ear, and then we hear, it hasn't worked since I was a kid, and we realize the grabber is also in the basement with Finn right now. He's wearing a mask, and he's talking to Finn. The grabber turns on the lights, and he's standing at the bottom of the staircase and tells Finn that he'll take him home soon, but right now, everything's fucked up, so they need to wait. He tells Finn he needs to go upstairs for a while, and Finn wants to know what's going on. Finn says, if you let me go, I promise I won't tell. And then Finn asks if someone's coming over to the grabber's house since the grabber says he's going to need to stay inside or stay upstairs for a while. And Finn's like, I'll scream. Someone will hear me. And the grabber's like, go ahead, scream all you want, but I soundproof this basement myself. Finn then asks about Bruce and Robin and the grabber says, I, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. That was someone else. And then the grabber tells Finn, I won't ever make you do anything that you won't like. Finn says, if you come near me, I'll scratch your face off. And the grabber says, this face. And of course, you know, he still have this, has the mask on. So sadly, I don't think scratching that's going to do a whole lot for him. The grabber tells Finn to hang up the phone. And then the grabber says, I was down here once and it rang and it was the creepiest damn thing. I think it's static electricity that does it. I picked it up without thinking to see if anyone was, was there. And Finn asks if there was. And the grabber just looks down and shakes his head. The grabber then exits the room and closes the door. We hear him walk back up the stairs and the lock click. The lights shut out and Finn is now alone in the room. He starts screaming for help multiple times and then he notices that there's a small window in the basement and we get an exterior shot of the house kind of through that window into the basement. We can't hear him screaming. We can see that he's screaming. We can't hear it at all. So it is good, decently soundproofed. When Finn finally clocks the window, he starts trying to jump for the ledge so he can hopefully break the window to get out, but it's just out of his reach. He's just not tall enough. He keeps jumping and grabbing, but it's not enough. He tries to pull the bed over and hopes that that will give him a little bit of extra height, but it's too heavy and he's unable to do it. He stomps himself and he's like, look, if someone could break the window, they would have done it already. Robin would have done it already. Finn then sits on the bed trying to process the situation he's in, and he tells himself, you're not going to get out of here. And then he says, I'm not going to get out of here. And then the phone rings again. He slowly turns towards it, and it rings again. He gets up and steps away from the phone and just stares at it. Finn goes over to it and picks it up and says, hello, but we hear nothing. Finn goes to hang up the phone, and then he pulls it back and says, hello again, before finally hanging it up. Now we see Finn curled up on the mattress trying to get some sleep. We're not really sure how much time has passed. But he wakes up and looks over at the phone, and the phone appears to be breathing. So Finn tells the phone to stop, and then we hear the grabber say, stop what? And he's sitting in the basement watching Finn sleep. 
But now he only has half of a mask on. He's got different masks that he wears throughout the film, which I think is interesting. Um, but this piece, he's only wearing, like, the mouth part. So you can see, like, his eyes and his forehead and more of his hair. Finn tells the grabber that he's hungry and he needs food, and the grabber asks how his eyes are, and Finn says they hurt. The grabber looks kind of concerned, and he's like, look, I can't bring you anything to eat right now, and Finn's like, is that because there's someone upstairs? The grabber says, you don't need to worry about that, and then Finn's like, look, if you aren't going to feed me, then why even come down here? And the grabber says, just to look at you. I just wanted to look at you. And then he gets up to leave, closing the door behind him as he goes upstairs and locks the door and shuts out the light. We see Finn curled up on the bed again, sleeping, and the phone rings again. He jumps up again, scoots away from the phone, looking surprised, and after the second ring, he gets off the bed to answer it. Finn says hello, and this time we hear static on the other end. Finn says, if there's someone there, I need help. We still just get static, and then we hear someone say very creepily, Finny, on the other end of the line. Finn hangs up the phone and falls to the floor and, like, scoots away, and then the phone rings again. Finn gets up and just is staring at the phone, and then stomps over to it, pulls it off the receiver, and hangs it back up. And then he backs away from the phone again, and it continues to ring. But this ring is different. The string is just one long, continuous ring. So instead of, like, ring, 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 this one's just, like, ring. It's, it's not good. I don't like it. Finn walks over to the phone, takes it off the receiver, and we hear someone say, don't hang up. Finn says he won't, and he asks who this is, and the person says, I don't remember my name. Finn says, why not? And the person says, it's the first thing you lose. And Finn says, when? And the guy says, you know when. And then Finn says, how do you know my name? And the guy says, we met once. Your arm is mint. You almost had me. And then we realize that Finn is talking to Bruce Yamada's ghost or spirit, whatever you want to call it. It gives me chills. It's so freaking good. I love this concept. I love the whole idea. And the phone call scenes are chilling. Finn even recognizes the voice and he says, Bruce, you're Bruce Yamada. And the voice says, yeah, Bruce. Bruce just says, your arm is mint. You almost had me. And then Finn asks if the phone rang for Bruce. And Bruce says it did, but no one else heard it. The only person who has heard it is you and the grabber. But the grabber doesn't want to believe it. Finn asks why he's calling him. And Bruce just says, your arm is mint. You almost had me there. I'm glad it's you. And then Bruce says, there's a dirt section of floor in the hallway where the tiles are loose. Finn's like, okay. And Bruce says, dig down underneath the foundation. I tried, but it wasn't enough time for me to dig up and out the other side. Finn asks if he will have enough time, and then the phone hangs up. Finn calls out for Bruce on the phone and then hangs up the phone when he gets no response. And then we get a very sad, cute montage of what's supposed to be Bruce Yamada's life and what it was like growing up for him, him and his dad playing t-ball when he was little, Bruce loving baseball, his family being kind, Bruce in school being smart and kind, just kind of all the highlights of his life that, you know, we wouldn't get to see otherwise. Um, but sadly, we also see in this montage the moment that Bruce was captured by the grabber. We cut to Finn at this doorway trying to shove his way through, screaming for help. The camera zooms out so we can see the front of the house, we can see the numbers on the house. Then Gwen wakes up in her bed and we realize that what we were just watching was the nightmare that she's just had. She's now on her bike in the middle of the night looking for this house. She's scanning the doors, she's scanning the streets looking for this house that she saw in her dream. And at this point we see Finney in the hallway of the basement looking for the section of floor that Bruce told him about. 
He starts digging, but of course it's, you know, having to dig by hand. He's making pretty good progress from what I'm assuming is the first night. He's able to get, like, his whole arm length in there. He needs to find something to do with the dirt, though, so he's taking it to the toilet and flushing it down the toilet in sections. And then he, like, takes this, like, carpeting that's wrapped up in the basement and rolls it out and puts it over the hole so the grabber hopefully won't notice when he comes down. Then, basically, he exhausts himself by doing this. He works until he can't anymore, and then he goes to sleep. We cut to what I'm assuming is the next day, and they're having uh, an assembly at school, and the principal and there's police officers there are telling the kids not to travel alone, to travel in groups, not to go with strangers, not to talk with anyone they don't know, and sadly, everyone just keeps looking at Gwen, and she looks sick. Now we see that Finn is awake and he's just staring at the phone and finally the door opens and the grabber is back in the basement and has brought Finn food finally. He still has the mask on. Finn asks the grabber what he put in the breakfast and he says salt and pepper and then he chuckles and he says eat don't eat you're already down here like why do I need to drug you and then he sets the food on the floor and he leaves the basement but this time he doesn't lock the door. Finn walks over to the door and puts his hand on the handle very slowly creaks it open and then the phone rings. Finn looks over and runs to the phone and says hello, and the voice on the other end says don't go upstairs. Finn says why not, and the boy says it's a trap. Finn asks if this is Bruce, and the voice says who's Bruce? The kid says I don't know any Bruce. Finn says he's the baseball player, and the voice says we don't play baseball here. And then Finn turns, and this is the first time that we actually see like a full apparition of the voice. Finn doesn't seem to see it though, I think only the audience does at this point. And this kid is clearly dead. He's got a nice gash on his face with blood coming down, and the boy says that he doesn't remember his name, and he doesn't remember who he is, and Finn asks if he played any sports, and the boy says, I delivered newspapers. And Finn recognizes him as being the newspaper boy that went missing, and Finn says that his name is Billy. The boy says, don't go upstairs, and Finn asks what he's doing, and Billy says he's waiting for you on the other side with that fucking belt. He didn't say you can leave, so if you try, he'll punish you. He'll beat you with that belt until you pass out. And then Billy says, it hurts, kid. It hurts real bad. You'll cry. You'll beg him to stop. We all did. But he just keeps beating you. And then Billy, like the physical version of him that we see as the audience, walks over to the phone and hangs it up. Like I said, Finn doesn't notice this physical apparition of Billy, which I think is really interesting dynamic to be able to show that the audience can see, but the main character can't. Um, I think it was it was a nice little touch. Finn realizes that he's been hung up on and he goes over to officially hang the phone up. He turns and looks over at the door. He walks over to it and opens it and then he just stands at the bottom of the stairs looking up. He takes pretty much almost all of the steps up the stairs and then we pan from the stairs over to where the grabber is and he's sitting in this kitchen area with no shirt on, with the mask on, holding this belt just sitting staring at the doorway waiting for finn to come up the stairs and around the corner finn gets almost to the top of the stairs and then he goes back down and closes the door to the basement and then he starts devouring the eggs that were brought downstairs to him we cut to gwen and she has fallen asleep in class and her teacher tells her to go to the nurse's office and have a nap we cut back to finn in the basement and he's sleeping on the bed the phone rings again and he wakes up and answers billy is back and Then Billy tells Finn not to call him Billy. And we see that the spirit of Billy is like messing with the Sprite bottle that was brought down. And he's just like spinning it around. Billy then says, I told you I was a paper boy. 
Do you see the wall in front of you where there's a crack between the lower end of the wall and the floor? Finn says yes, and Billy explains that he tore a long piece of cable from the wall at that spot, but he kept it hidden. Finn asks what he's supposed to do with it, and then we see the Sprite bottle start spinning very quickly on the floor, and then it stands and points toward the window. So essentially, hopefully, you take that cord, wrap it around the uh, bars in the window, and possibly pull the bars out so that you can get out. We cut back to Gwen, and she's in the nurse's office having a nap, trying to sleep so she can get more clues to where her brother might be. She has a dream about the paper boy getting his papers ready, getting ready to go deliver them, and then him being taken by the grabber as well. She does get another clue, though. She sees more of the house this time. She sees there's a, like, a almost petrified-looking tree in the front yard with no leaves on it, uh, very few actual branches, and it's basically just kind of a tree stump out in front of the house. She wakes up quickly looking around, and then she runs out of the nurse's office. We cut back to Finn, and he's trying his best to fish out the wire or the cable, whatever you want to call it. He's able to do so and makes his way over to the window. He hopes he can rope it around, like I said, to get the bars out. Finn is sadly unable to get the rope around how he wants, uh, but then he decides to pull one of the other mats that's wrapped up, you know, like the one that he used to cover the hole in the floor. Um, he grabs that and fishes one end of the cord through and then props it up again so that it will go up through the mat and up onto the window ledge and then we'll come back down. It actually works really well. Uh, Finn is now trying to scale this wall to get up to the window and he's having a hard time holding himself up. He ties a knot in the bottom, uh, you know, so that his foot can rest and he can, you know, try to pull himself up the rest of the way. Uh, sadly though, the bars come out of the window and he now has no way to hoist himself up. The bars come out, he comes crashing to the floor, um, and his hope is crushed again. Now we see Gwen go to their dad and she asks if she can ask him a question. He says yes, he pulls up a chair, and she's like, promise you won't get mad. And he's like, I promise. And you can see that he's been drinking, and she's like, it's about my dreams. He looks a little frustrated, and he takes a drink, then he puts his head down, and she's waiting for him to respond, and he says, what about your dreams? And she's like, what if, what if they're real? And her dad stops her, and he's like, your mother was a special soul. She was smart just like you, but she was also, he takes a pause, and he says she was also touched. She thought she saw things, she heard things, she became so convinced that her dreams meant something, and eventually they told her to do terrible, terrible things until she took her own life. And he's like, they weren't real, sweetheart, they just weren't. And Gwen's like, I loved mom. And her dad's like, I, I did too. And Gwen's like, no, I loved her the way that she was. And you can tell this is a really difficult conversation for them to have, and it's also a difficult conversation to watch. Because, of course, I don't condone the father's actions. Like, I can't imagine losing your significant other to suicide and then feeling like you can see your child going down that same path. Like, he's got to be worried, but it doesn't condone how he's choosing to combat his fear. And again, like I talked about in the beginning, I can't help but think that Gwen and her mom and Finn all shine a little bit. Uh, I very much get Danny and Abra vibes like like Dr. Sleep um, from this story and the two of them. I just, yeah, I just love it so much. Gwen says, what if it could help me find Finn? And then we cut to Finn and her dad in the car driving around because she's looking for the house. 
there's another search conducted the police are called and we see the two detectives that we met earlier stop at a house and we hear a dog bark the person on the other end of the door is trying to get the dog under control he gets the dog in the crate and then we see this man open the door we learn that the police are canvassing the area looking for Finney, and the man invites them inside, and he's very adamant about he's been looking into the case himself. He thinks he has some ideas about what's going on, and he has some stuff to show them. And he's like, all the kids lived in the same district. They were all grabbed, you know, on the way home, except for Robin. He was grabbed on a Saturday, and the detectives are like, yes, we know all of those things. And the man's like, he has to have a house with a garage or a basement, so he has to live somewhere in this area. We learn that this man's name is Max, and we learn that Max is currently staying at his brother's. And we see there's cocaine on the table. The detectives kind of clock this and knowingly look at one another. And they're like, if you see any of these boys, give us a call. If you see anything, call the police. And the police are like, you also might want to tidy up before your brother gets home. And they kind of point to the cocaine, and Max is like, oh, you stupid moron. When the police leave, he's very upset with himself that he looks stupid in front of the police because he wanted them to be a team. He's like, you know, you and I can work together and all this stuff. And he's trying. Max is Max is a good guy. He's just kind of dumb. Mojo Dojo Casa House, if you catch my drift. Um... But Max ends up doing the line of cocaine anyway. We pan the camera down to the basement, and we see that Finn is in the basement of that house. So it's either Max, who's the grabber, or it's Max's brother. We see Finn go, and he continues to dig at the hole. He's now fully able to fit in it, like standing can fit in it. He continues to dig, and then we see him sitting on the bed. The lights go on, and he lays down pretending to be asleep. The grabber comes in with food and stands there watching Finn for a little bit, and then he's like, I know you're not sleeping. Finn opens his eyes and sits up, and then the grabber asks Finn what his name is. Finn asks why he wants to know, and the grabber's like, I'll find out when they print it in the paper. There's always a nice big photo. I usually don't care, but, you know, I'm curious now. Finn asks what's different this time, and the grabber says it's complicated. Everything's different. Nothing's going right. And Finn says, you could let me go. The grabber's like, I'm thinking about it. Finn says he won't tell anyone, and Finn clearly gets really helpful. He's like, you can blindfold me, you can drop me off in a street i'll walk home it doesn't matter it's fine and then finn tells the grabber that his name is taylor taylor mullen the grabber then throws the food on the floor and we see that he has a newspaper under his arm and sadly finn's name and picture have already been printed the grabber is upset and he's like i was really starting to like you i almost let you go and then he shuts the door and leaves again without locking it finn's pissed he's upset he goes to open the door and then the phone rings Finn says hello, and then we just hear static, and then the phone hangs up. We see the grabber is still waiting at the top of the stairs, hoping that Finn will come up and try to escape. He's sitting in his little chair in front of the entryway to the basement, and we, and as we're watching the grabber sit there, he appears to be nodding off. Then we see Finn go over, and he's picking up all the eggs off the floor and putting them onto the plate, and then we see him asleep on the bed. Finn wakes up because he hears this dripping noise, and we hear it in the basement as well. He wakes up in the dark in the basement. He pulls out his little spaceship pen, which has, like I said, the light on the end, and he starts shining it around the room. And he starts next to him, kind of on the wall to his left, and then to the wall in front of him with the big door on it. And then as he scans over to the right, we can see this physical manifestation of a dead boy like floating in the air like on his back but he's not touching the ground at all he's like fully suspended and it's a good jump scare like this jump scare actually got me in the movie i like physically jumped which does not happen for me very often finn starts crying and the boy points to the phone 
Finn gets off the bed and slowly makes his way over to the phone and picks up the receiver. He turns back and the boy's body is gone. We hear someone on the other end say, you don't have much time. The grabber hasn't been sleeping. He thinks this might be it. He's going to figure it out. The kid on the other end tells Finn that the grabber's brother's upstairs and the grabber's worried that his brother's going to figure it out. Finn asks if this is Griffin and the boy says, probably, it's a little hazy, but I imagine you know all of our names. And Finn says, every kid does. Finn says, I didn't know you, and the kid's like, nobody does. You spend so many years invisible, and then every kid in the state knows your name. And then the Griffin, the kid, on the phone, tells Finn, you don't have much time. Finn's like, why hasn't he killed me yet? And the boy's like, you won't play the game. If you don't play, he can't win, and you haven't played the game. Finn asks what game, and Griffin says, naughty boy. Griffin's like, if you don't play naughty boy, then the grabber can't beat you. If he can't beat you, he can't move on to the next part. And the next part of naughty boy is his favorite part. Finn asks what part, and we hear Griffin laugh. Griffin says, you don't have much time. Griffin then tells Finn that the grabber is sleeping right now in his chair at the top of the stairs. Finn realizes that the door is still unlocked and asks if he just goes. Griffin says, there's a combination lock on the inside of the storm door that's actually my bike lock. Finn asks what the code is, and the boy says he can't remember it, of course. I mean, if you lose your name, you're probably going to lose your bike lock as well. Finn's like, well, that's not helpful, and the boy says that he wrote it down. Finn asks where, and he says, on that wall, over there, kind of toward the bottom, about shoulder height, when you're sitting down. Finn goes and he finds the number, and he asks Griffin if they're in the right order, and Griffin's like, I'm not sure. Just whatever numbers are listed, that must be what it is. But the numbers that are listed are 23317. So Finn's like, is it 233.17? Is it 23.317? Is it 23.317? Griffin says he's not sure, but Finn's just going to have to try everything. They hang up, and Finn tries to psych himself up a little bit before making his way upstairs. He keeps repeating the numbers back to himself, and then he slowly goes over to the door, opens it, and slowly makes his way up the stairs. He gets into the kitchen and at lo- or like as he rounds that corner to go into the kitchen, he sees the grabber sitting there. But the grabber thankfully is still asleep. It's a very tense moment when we're like, is he awake? Is he asleep? Uh, but he's asleep. He starts snoring a little bit. Finn slowly makes his way into the kitchen and the scene is so dead silent. They don't have music playing and they don't have anything. You can just hear like the grabber breathing and Finn's very, very light footsteps. Finn is now standing right next to the grabber, and the grabber starts snoring a little bit heavier. Finn makes his way into the house, and we see the board that Max was using is sitting there, so this for sure is the same house that the detectives were in earlier, like we suspected. Finn makes his way to the front door and slowly opens it, and then we see the screen door that has the combination lock. Finn tries the first combination. It doesn't work. He turns around to make sure the grabber is still asleep before trying the second combination. It also doesn't work. He then tries the third combination, and you can see he's getting more and more nervous as he's standing there. And we see that the grabber is still sleeping behind him. He pulls the lock, and it unlocks. Sadly, the unlocking sound triggers the dog to start barking, which wakes the grabber. He realizes that the front door is wide open and is out the door chasing Finn. Finn gets into the street, or, like, basically gets on the sidewalk and starts running down the road. We see the grabber's van pull off behind him, and then Finn starts screaming for help. The grabber pulls into the driveway, like, kind of cutting Finn off and gets out of the car and ends up tackling Finn to the ground. Uh, Sadly, Finn isn't fast enough, and the grabber is able to tackle him. And it's nighttime right now, so it's all dark outside. We see a couple house lights flick on um, because people heard him screaming, but nobody actually comes out to investigate the noise. 
and the grabber holds a knife to Finn's throat and says, if you scream, I will gut you right here. And then when we see the lights on the houses flick off, the grabber says, night, night, naughty boy, before punching Finn in the face, knocking him out. We see Finn get brought back down into the basement and tossed on the bed, and then we hear Max from upstairs asking what all the commotion was. And the grabber's like, Samson was barking about something, it's nothing, he was just barking to bark, go back to bed. And then the grabber makes his way back upstairs. We cut to Gwen and she's waking up in her bed and she goes to her little doll house and she kneels down and she goes, Jesus, what the fuck? I asked for your help and you give me these clues that don't mean anything and now this morning I wake up without any dream. What the hell is wrong with you? You let the grabber take Finny, right? And then Gwen says, unless, and then she sighs and she nervously says, what if you're not even real? We cut back to the basement and Finn is finally coming around. He is bleeding a little bit and he's like, son of a bitch, as he's kind of waking up and the phone rings and he's like, fuck you to the phone. And then he gets up and answers it and sits back down, just waiting for whatever messages to come. And then nothing happens for a minute and Finn's like, are you going to say something? Do you even know who you are? And the voice on the other end says, what the shit kind of question is that? Do you even know who you are? Finn says that his name's Finny Blake, and the guy's like, yeah, well, nice to fucking meet you, Finny Blake, right here. This is the horrifying nightmare end of your pathetic little life. And Finn says, holy shit, you're Vance Hopper. I remember you. You used to scare me. And Vance is like, trust me, Blake, if you knew what you had coming, you'd be fucking terrified. Today's the day, motherfucker. And then we get a flashback to the day that Vance was taken, and we come to this little convenience store. We see Vance playing pinball. He's doing really good. People are, like, coming to watch. He's got a friend cheering him on. He's got this beautiful curly hair. He looks like a total badass, like, definitely someone who would curse at a school teacher. Um, and we see these two other boys in the convenience store kind of get into a little argument, and they're, like, kind of shoving each other. And one of them falls back into the pinball machine and causes Vance to lose his winning streak. This causes Vance to spiral. He starts freaking out and starts beating the kids up, throwing these kids around the store, and the owner of the store calls the police. All of these kids are watching this happen. Vance and these two boys are, like, beating up one another. Vance is able to get the upper hand on the two of them, and we see Finn was actually in the convenience store that afternoon and saw this happen. The picture gets a little grainy, much like we've seen from Gwen's dreams, and in this montage, we see Vance carve 7741 in the boy's arm with a parka knife, and then we cut to the police carrying Vance out of the convenience store and putting him in the back of a police car. And then we see as they're putting him in the car, Gwen is walking around the police car, checking everything out, and then she goes and she gets in on the other side and sits next to Vance. She looks over at Vance, and they're not talking. She's just looking around the cop car, and Vance is looking around the streets, and they're driving, and the police radio starts playing back the conversation, essentially the other side of the conversation that we just heard with Finn. We hear Finn's voice come through the radio, and Vance answers the what the shit kind of question is that, um, and Gwen starts freaking out because she can hear Finn's voice. She gets really excited, but she can't make any noise in the dream, but we see her trying to scream Finn's name, but no sound is coming out. And then Vance points, and he says, this is it. Gwen gets out of the car, and she's standing in front of the grabber's house. She sees the tree, she sees the house, and she makes her way up to the door, and we can see the house numbers on the house are 7741. We see Vance get out of the car as well, and he walks up to the house, and there's this little gate outside. It's like a half fence, like a little just 
wire fence and he kicks in the gate and goes up to the property and this is when Gwen wakes up after she's fallen asleep in the bathtub. Gwen looks terrified and then her dad says, hey, you need to hurry up, otherwise you're going to be late for school. He's like standing outside the doorway. She apologizes, then we cut back to Finn in the basement. Vance asks if he's tried stacking the carpets to reach the window and Finn says, yes, I've tried that. I've tried everything. And Vance says, not everything. And Vance says, when the grabber saw what I had done, he took his time with me. And then Finn asks what he did. Vance gets upset that Finn is trying to rush him, and Finn's like, no, 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 I'm sorry, take your time. I'm listening, it's okay. And then Vance says there's an outlet in the shitter across from the john, and Finn says, yeah, I know. And Vance says, on the other side of that wall, there's a storage room. There's a big-ass freezer in the way. And Finn's like, okay. And, And Vance further goes on to explain that you can break into the wall just a little bit above the outlet. You can get to a panel with screws. If you can get those screws off, you can get the panel off. You'll be in the freezer, and you can get out that way. Finn then says, thank you. And Vance says, for what? And Finn says, for helping me. And Vance says, this isn't about you. Fuck him. We see Vance start screaming, and he's making, like, the manifestation of him is making his way closer to Finn, but then something ends up pulling Vance's manifestation back. Finn falls to the ground screaming, and we see the two sprite bottles, like, shoot at the wall toward Finn. Clearly, Vance is a very angry spirit, much like he was in real life. Next, we see Finn go into the bathroom area. He takes the top part off the toilet and uses it to try and break into the wall. Uh, It's taking him a long time. He's trying to make dents, but he's exhausted, but he's trying as hard as he can. He's drinking water from the back of the toilet, and is just continuing to smash into the wall with the back of his toilet piece. Finally, he gets to the freezer part, and he's able to undo the screws with pieces that he found in the back of the toilet. Uh, He gets the panel off. He gets inside the freezer, um, but the freezer is, like, locked, so he's unable to get out of the freezer, and he looks so defeated and disappointed. He crawls out of the freezer and back into the basement, and he just curls up in the corner and starts crying. We pan away from Finn sitting in the corner crying, and we hear the phone ringing in the other room. Finn slowly stands up and makes his way over to the phone, and the voice that he hears on the other end is his friend Robin. Robin says, hey Finn, what's happening? Then he tells Finn not to cry. Finn says that he's not, and Robin says, yes, you are. I can see you. Finn says, you can, and Robin says, I'm with you. I've been with you this whole time. A man never leaves his friend behind. My dad didn't leave his buddies behind when he went to Nam. That's why he didn't come home. And I'm not coming home either, but I'm not going to leave you behind. Finn then solemnly says, we'll be together again soon, and Robin says, fuck that. You're not going out like I did. Finn's like, I've tried everything and nothing's worked. And Robin's like, yet. And then Robin says, do you remember what I told you? And Finn pauses, and he's like, but I need to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Robin says, no, before that. And Finn says, someday I need to stand up for myself. And Robin's like, and today's that day you stop taking shit from anyone. Finn says, I'm not a fighter like you. You couldn't even take him, Robin. Why do you think I would be able to? And Robin's like, you've always been a fighter, ma'am. That's what we have in common. Why we're friends. You were always afraid to throw a punch, but you always knew how to take one, and you always got back up every time. Finn says that he's not strong enough, and Robin says you have to be. You're getting out of here. If you can't do it for you, do it for me. Finn takes a step closer to the door of the basement, away from the phone, and we see the manifestation of Robin standing next to Finn, but of course Finn isn't able to see it. Robin says, I don't want to have died for nothing. I want to at least have died for a friend. Because I can't kill that man, you have to do it for me. Finn says, how? And Robin says, you're going to use a weapon. 
Finn asks which run, and Robin says the one in your hand. Fold the receiver with dirt. Pack it in tight. Give it some heft. And then you practice over and over and over. You raise the phone, take a fast step forward, step back, step forward, and swing. Then we see the two of them go through this montage, and Robin is coaching Finn through getting him comfortable with the movements. And the scene is so powerful, like their friendship, the closeness, and Robin just encouraging Finn. Um, it's kind of like the scene in the movie, I feel like. Robin says, you got it now. Fill the phone with dirt like I taught you. And Finn says, will I still be able to talk with you? And Robin says, this is the last call. It's all you from here on out. And just before Finn hangs up the phone, he tells Robin that he misses him. And Robin says, then you need to get out of here for me. Finn says that he will, and they say goodbye. And Finn hangs up the phone. And this is very heartbreaking. I don't know if you can tell, but I am tearing up just talking about it because it's very sad. We see Finn use his pen to cut the cord on the phone. And then he takes the phone over to his dirt pile and fills the receiver with as much dirt as he can. He hangs it back on the hook, and he also sets a couple traps with the cord that he found, and he's setting everything up. We see Gwen is riding her bike around town in a yellow raincoat, um, again calling back to it, and she's still looking for the house. And the whole time she's like, please, Jesus, please, please, I'm sorry I said you weren't real, please be real. And then she's driving and looking from side to side, and she looks up, and we see the apparition of all of the dead boys standing in front of her. And she sees this, and this causes her to crash her bike, but it crashes right in front of 7741. The same door, the same gate, the same tree. She gets back on her bike and rides away very quickly. We see her get home, and she gets the number for the detective, and she goes to call him on the phone. We cut back to the house, and we see Max doing another line of cocaine, and he's looking at his board of grabber information and from newspaper stuff, and he seems to have possibly cracked something. We also see the grabber who... We don't see his face during this, but he's driven his van to a hardware store, and he's bought a plastic mat and cement and all of this other stuff, assuming that, you know, this is probably Finn's last day. We cut to a little scene of the detectives getting the phone call, I'm assuming from Gwen, and then he stands up and he tells his partner to, like, get his stuff, and they grab their coats and they quickly leave out the door. Max stands up and walks over to his board, and you can tell he's got this light bulb. He doesn't say anything, but he seems very sure of whatever it is in the moment. He's looking at the map where he was saying he thinks the grabber is, and he thinks he solved something. We see the black van drive back to the house. The rain has stopped and Gwen is also on her way back to the house on her bike. We see Max coming into the kitchen. It's the same kitchen from earlier where we've seen the grabber. We see Max standing at the doorway to like round the corner to go down into the basement and he hesitates before going down. He's not sure if he wants to, you know, because of course you want to be the one to maybe save a child, but you also don't want it to have been your family member the entire time. So it's it's fair that there's some hesitation, I feel like. We cut to Finn, and he seems to be getting this feeling that it's time to pick up the phone. We see the phone again appears to be breathing, and he walks over to it and picks up the receiver, and the lights turn on. The door slowly opens, and we see Max standing there, and he goes, No fucking way. And Finn looks shocked, and Max is like, I knew it. I knew he was hiding something down here, but holy mother of God. And Finn's like, Wait. 
like, you have to help me. Please call my dad. Please call my sister. You have to help me. And Max is like, no, listen, don't worry. He's not here. He had to go to work. It's all okay. I'm Max. Stay calm. No wonder he was freaking out this morning. And Max is, like, not fully in the basement yet. He's standing at the very bottom of the stairs. And the door cracks open just a little bit more. And Max is like, do you want to know the story about how I found you, man? And Finn's like, no, not really. And then the door fully opens up more, and we see the grabber is standing right behind Max, and he brings down this large axe right on top of Max's head in front of Finny. It's so sad. It's such a tease. And the entire movie, you're just, like, waiting. Like, Finn escapes, and then he gets captured again, and then Max finds him, and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, is this how it's going to end? And then the fucking axe, it's ridiculous but I love it it's ridiculously heartbreaking not ridiculous it's heartbreaking and I love it Max actually stammers a couple of steps a little bit before he falls to the ground and now the grabber has entered the basement Gwen is standing outside the house and the detective asks if this is the house and Gwen says that she's never seen it before today except in her dreams and she's sure that this is the house she says every detail is exactly like in her dream and the detective's head up to the house and tell one of the other officers to stay with Gwen. She tells them to please hurry and they make their way to the front door. We go back to the basement and the grabber's like, look what you made me do. You made me kill my brother. And Finn's like, that wasn't my fault. And the grabber says he was an idiot, referring to Max. And the grabber goes, but he was my idiot. The grabber's covered in blood and he has only the top part of his mask on now, so you can see his actual mouth this time. The grabber tells Max he's going to put him with the others and the grabber's like well I guess you found the naughty boys after all as he's like kind of referring to Max again the grabber takes the axe out of Max's head and then makes his way over to the door again almost like he's getting ready to leave Finny down there with the dead body but then the grabber's like why do you have that phone what are you doing I told you that phone doesn't work and you can tell he's getting a little frustrated and then the grabber says normally I would use a knife but you're special and I'm gonna take my time with you I want it to really hurt And then the grabber calls Samson, the dog, downstairs. And this dog's big. Like, this is a pretty intense-looking dog. This is about the size of Finn. And we cut back to the detectives, and we see that they're breaking into the house. When they enter the house, it doesn't look like there's any furniture. There's nothing set up like anyone lives there. And the officers even notice this. Like, they're like, this feels like the wrong house. There's, like, it doesn't look like anybody lives here. There's nothing in this house. Now we see the grabber making his way over to Finny, and he goes to swing the axe, but Finn is able to dodge out of the way. Finn runs down the hallway and jumps over the hole in the floor. Uh, the grabber chases after him and trips over the cord, ends up falling into the hole, and Finn had put the window bar, like, section thing there, and so the grabber ends up breaking his leg when he falls in the hole. The grabber tries to reach for Finn, but Finn is able to, you know, use the maneuver that Robin had taught him, and he's able to, you know, dodge a couple of the things and land a couple good hits on the grabber, but then Finn gets a little too excited and a little too confident that he has the upper hand. He gets a little too close, and the grabber is able to grab him, essentially, and pulls Finny toward him. Finn is able to get out of it, though, by taking the grabber's mask off which causes him to freak out because he doesn't want Finn to see his face. Finn's able to get up and get away from him and then he uses the cord on the phone to choke out the grabber. As he's choking the grabber we hear the phone ring even though it's disconnected and the grabber looks terrified as this is happening and Finn knows that he's winning. 
He holds the phone up to the grabber's ear and tells the grabber that it's for him. And we hear Vance saying, welcome to the nightmare end of your pathetic little life. Griffin says, you don't have much time and starts laughing. And Vance says, today's the day, motherfucker. Robin says, I can't kill you, motherfucker. So Finn's going to do it for me. And Bruce says, Finn's arm is mint. And then he pulls his arm down and essentially snaps the grabber's neck. Now Finn just has to get past this dog. We cut back upstairs and we see there's a door to the basement hiding behind this like bookcase that one of the other officers has found. So the detectives come back and they're going to make their way into the basement. Once they move the cupboard back in the basement, um, we see that Finn has collected one of the pieces of meat from the freezer and is going to use that to distract the dog so that he can get up the stairs and leave. Finn makes his way upstairs and we see the detectives start coming down the stairs into the basement, but we realize that this is a different house. This is not the right house. This is not the house that Finn is in. This basement is unfinished, but we do see that this basement is where the grabber was disposing of the kids. They've all been buried in this basement of this abandoned house, and there's a fresh hole in the basement dug, essentially, for Finn. The detectives know this is where he dumps the bodies, but they're still unsure of where Finn is and if Finn is alive. Finn makes his way into the kitchen and then back toward the front door like he had earlier in the film. He unlocks the door again with the same combination and steps out into the light. As he steps out, we see that the house that he was in was directly across the street from the house that Gwen took the police to. So Gwen is sitting in front of that house, like sitting against the fence, looking at the house that Finn ends up walking out of, just kind of staring off into space. Finn ends up walking out and she sees him step out. We see the black van in the carport of the house that Finn comes out of. She can't believe what she's seeing. Like, she just stands up and stands and stares at him. Finally, she runs across the street. They hug one another. It's such a great moment. I love siblings in horror movies, and these two are top-tier siblings in a horror movie. I love it. And then we see all of these police officers rushing from the one house into <laughs> the other house. The detectives realize it as well. They start running across the street, and it's just it's great finn tells the detectives that they need to go down into the basement and the detectives tell the officers to get the kids out of there finn and gwen are escorted away from the house and the whole time gwen is like latched to finn's side she's not gonna let him go we see them sitting in the back of an ambulance with blankets wrapped around them and then finally their father arrives on the scene and he at first is like hasty about making his way to the back of the ambulance to see the two of them and then as he's about halfway there he kind of like starts to slow down because it almost looks like his legs are shaking he started to cry he goes to them and just kind of collapses in front of them and says forgive me i'm so sorry he starts crying and both of them just seem a little over it they obviously care about their dad but right now they're just happy to be with one another again and for for finn to be alive Now the news stations are there and the police chief is holding a conference and letting the community know that they've discovered five bodies that they believe to be the missing boys. They've recovered Finn and he's okay. And here are the facts of the case by the men who broke it. And then he turns the conference over to the two detectives and the detectives start talking as the camera is panning up and away to get like an overview shot of the street. Detective Wright says the perpetrator known as the grabber owned two homes, one where he kept the victims while alive and a second empty home across the street where he buried them post-mortem. Now we see Finn coming back to school after the whole ordeal and everyone's talking about him. They're like, oh my god, he killed the grabber. He stabbed into death. Like, he survived. He killed him. You know, all of those... uh, I was going to say rumors, but they're really not rumors. Like, he he did do all of those things. 
I guess he cut him. I guess he did kind of stab him. Um, but everyone seems to give Finn a lot of respect. Even the bullies are kind of like not gonna fuck with Finn anymore. He goes into class and sits at his normal desk, and Donna comes and sits next to him like normal. Um, she calls him Finny, because that's what most people call him, and then he just looks at her, and he's like, you can call me Finn. They both smile, and then we get our end credits, and that is the end of The Black Phone. I love this one. I was really excited to, I felt like I needed to pick a strong uh, movie for me for my 50th episode, and I couldn't think of a better one than The Black Phone. Um... I was so excited to see it in theaters. Um, I saw it and then I actually read the short story, so um, I don't know if I would have, I don't think I would have been sad if I would have read the short story first and saw it. I think that they did, you know, great to expand it into a full movie. You know, it's hard to develop a short story without changing anything or like adding too much because you've got to have, you know, different plot lines going on and stuff. So I think that they did a really great job. I mean, shout out to Scott Dickerson, who directed, and then Scott and C. Robert Cargill, who did the the screenplay, they did such an amazing job. Um, Cargill is so talented. Of course, Scott is known for directing The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, Doctor Strange, and The Black Phone. And then, of course, um, C. Robert Cargill is known for writing Sinister, Sinister 2, working on Doctor Strange, and of course The Black Phone. Um, him and Scott work together very often, and I think that they make a phenomenal team. Sinister and Sinister 2 are both solid horror films. Love both of them so much. Um, and so was, I was really excited when I heard that they were doing The Black Phone, um, and when I saw the previews and kind of learned a little bit more about the story, I was like, this is going to be amazing and it lived up to every single one of my uh, anticipations and then some I think it's great if you've not watched it go check it out if it's not going to be triggering for you uh, you know don't force yourself to watch something that's you know gonna make you uneasy for a couple of days um, but I do think this one's great and it actually got a like full jump scare for me which I don't get to say very often so I hope that you enjoyed today's episode um, if you did, please feel free to like and rate the podcast wherever you listen. I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, I can't wait to do these next couple of episodes uh, on my time on for podcast stuff. I think it's great. Um, I have also recently started a YouTube channel where I play horror video games. Um, so I have played through Resident Evil 7. I'm playing through Resident Evil 4, the remake. I started playing Dead Space, but then my game got corrupted, so I need to wait for the developers to fix whatever that issue is that a lot of people are having. Um, so yeah, hoping to get back into Dead Space, but if you want to check that out, it's on YouTube under Megan's Murder Games. Um, so very similar name to the podcast, just to make it easy. Um, so yeah, if you want to check that out, feel free to go ahead. I'll have that linked below in show notes if you're interested. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I cannot wait to jump into the next one. I feel like I've got a really fun lineup for these next couple weeks. Next week, we are going to dive into Prey, which came out on Hulu last year, which of course is part of the Predator franchise. And it is another very recent totally phenomenal i wish i would have got to see it in theaters i think they did a couple screenings of it um i sadly didn't get to see it in theaters but i watched it on hulu quite a few times it's quality it's amazing i love it um so look forward to that next week i will see you in the next one and remember to stay safe and stay spooky